In addition to his being a small kind of nerdy kid, you also had a situation where his mother had left him with his dad early on in his childhood. And when you get that kind of that kind of situation, it only reads as rejection to a youngster. And um, I think he was looking for acceptance. And maybe his seek of celebrity was replacing his mother. Who was Prince? That is what I wish reporters were asking. And everything he touched was brilliant. He was the best pimp I've ever seen. Prince had a really awful childhood, really awful by any measure. And he wanted to be that beautiful, beautiful woman and also that beautiful, beautiful man. He never got over his mom and dad's divorce. Welcome to Chapter 3 of Who Was Prince? Chapter 3 is called Alone in a World That's So Cold, because we're going to talk about Prince's turbulent childhood and the beginning of his resentment for his mother, which would shape his entire life. I'm your host, Torre, and in 1981, early in Prince's career, he opened for the Rolling Stones in L.A. twice, on a Friday and a Sunday. And both times... It was a disaster. He was promoting the album Dirty Mind and going on stage in lingerie in front of a tough crowd that had come to see the Stones and their opening bands, George Thorogood and the Destroyers and the Jay Giles Band. It was a terrible fit. But when they were planning it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were enamored with Prince. They wanted to introduce him to their audience, so they put him on the bill as a warm-up act for their tour. This must have been a huge compliment to Prince, who thought a lot about the Stones in the early days. Bandmate Des Dickerson, who played in those shows, told me the one thing he talked to me about a number of times in the early going was he wanted he and I to be the black version of the Glimmer Twins, to have that Keith and Mick thing and have a rock and roll vibe fronting this new kind of band. That's what he wanted. Prince knew that these shows were important for him. Brown Mark was a bassist in the Revolution who played in those Rolling Stones shows. This was actually his first show with Prince. And beforehand, Prince told him, This is going to be big. This could be really big. And yeah, 96 to 100,000 people seeing you every night. And we go on this little tour with the Stones. I mean, you can only imagine what it would have done at that point for his career. Very bold but smart move. Because even though it was a Stones crowd, they still, even if you got 10% of them in each city, I mean, you're building your base. Because he wanted to cross over, and this was definitely would have done it for him. Prince was supposed to do a 30-minute set, but that first night, he came out in heels, lingerie, and a trench coat, singing in a falsetto. Brown Mark remembers it all starting out well. You hear that roar of the crowd. But two minutes into the show... That hardcore hippie crowd turned on Prince. They said, what the hell is this? But I remember when we was hitting Bambi, and I just remember stuff just started trickling up on the stage. And I was like, wait a minute, was that that a bottle? You know, and stuff just started coming. (laughs) And then it just started coming faster and faster and faster. Next thing I know, man, a big old grapefruit got lodged into the, uh, the keys of my bass. It threw the whole bass out of tune, and I'm up there playing out of tune, but, you know, you don't hear nothing because it's just, it's just, it's chaos. So I'm I'm sitting there, I'm trying to play the song and tune the bass as I'm playing it, at least back on track somewhat, and then I'm dodging chicken. I got hit with a bag of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I don't know if it was Kentucky Fried, but it looked like it. (laughs) Big old bag, plastic bag, just hit me, you know, and then... uh, Jack Daniel bottles were flying up on stage. People were throwing quarters, bottle caps. I mean, you make shoes, bras. I mean, everything. And then uh, what did it was, I remember he got hit upside the head. It had to be like a quarter or a silver dollar or something. When Prince went in to jack you off, they totally lost the audience. When we went into that song and he said, guys, this is what you do with your girl. I was like, no, that's not what you do with your girl. That's what your girl does with you. I was like, no, no, don't, don't say that. And I remember I was cringing when he said it. He said, yeah, this is what you do. You'd be at the driving theater and you do this with your girl. And 
We went in this whole jack you off thing, man. I've never seen so many middle fingers. I mean, it went into a frenzy. Next thing you know, food was coming from everywhere, man. It looked like clouds. People was booing, and I mean, it was bad. Morris Day was there. I was out at the soundboard, and I got my uh, camera set up and aiming at the stage. And you could kind of just feel the climate because you look out in the audience, and everybody's there to see the Rolling Stones. So you got bikers. um, You got some rough-looking cats out there, you know, leather jackets and beards and drinking beer and shit. And, you know, here comes Prince uh, doing his dirty mind thing with a trench coat and some hot pants and leg warmers on. And, you know, he comes out doing his thing and throwing the trench coat back and stuff. And uh, these dudes is like, what the hell is this? The audience started booing and giving them the finger and throwing stuff at them. The band got pummeled with food, cans of Coca-Cola. One of the band members who was there said he saw a fifth of Jack Daniels whiz by Prince's face, missing him by a quarter of an inch. Watching it go down was just crazy. That's Leroy Bennett, Prince's lighting director and production designer from 1980 to 1994. They were throwing shoes or sneakers, chicken, everything. And it was, you know, it was heartbreaking to see him getting hit and... I mean, you could just see it was freaking them out. A devastating thing to see. Morris Day. Beer bottles start flying up on stage and you hear booze and all of that. Three songs into his set, Prince ran off stage in fear. The audience was attacking him. So I said, I better hightail it to the backstage area. So I got back there. Prince standing on side, humiliated. Didn't really have anything to say. He's just like, let's get the hell out of here. We jumped in the limo. Next thing I know, we're on a plane back to Minneapolis. But Prince never told the band to stop. He just walked off. Des Dickerson had to signal the band to stop. And Brown Mark never even saw Des's signal to quit. I'm looking behind, everybody's running off the stage. I was like, oh man, let me get out of here, man. So I started running with my bass, trying to get off the stage too, it was bad. Man, I was dodging everything. And so I just started booking. I was the last one out. When they got off stage, they were like, where's Prince? He had already gotten in his limo and was on his way to the airport to fly back to Minneapolis. He was like, I'm done with this Rolling Stones tour. Prince's manager, Alan Leeds. You know, it was a disaster. I suppose you'd say the wrong audience, the wrong place at the wrong time, because they were just horribly booed off the stage, bottles thrown at him, food thrown at him. I mean, it was it was as brutal a rejection as an audience can give an artist. And of course, Prince famously got on a plane and flew home. They were supposed to do two nights. And after the first show, he was so freaked out, he just got on a plane and went home. Jagger called Prince and begged him to come back and do the Sunday show. There was a lot at stake. There were several more shows scheduled in other markets. Jagger told a reporter, I talked to Prince on the phone after he got cans thrown at him in L.A. He said he didn't want to do any more shows. God, I got thousands of bottles and cans thrown at me, every kind of debris. I told him if you get to be a really big headliner, you have to be prepared for people to throw bottles at you in the night. Prepared to die. I can hear Jagger saying that. Dickerson told Prince he'd played in racist biker bars and had been attacked even worse. He told Prince, you can't let them run you out of town. So Prince flew back to L.A. for the Sunday night show. It did not go well. Before the band went out, Bill Graham, a legendary promoter, basically yelled at the audience and told them that they were idiots and they'd they'd be paying a lot of money to see him in the upcoming years. If it's a Rolling Stones crowd, which is a completely kind of biker mentality and you know, they didn't understand. You know, he frightened them. You know, it was something that they didn't get in his trench coat and his bikini briefs and his high heels and his leg warmers. And it was just something that they just, they didn't understand. Once again, bottles and food were thrown. Des Dickerson recalls a bag of old, smelly chicken pieces flying at them. It was obvious the audience had contempt for the funky little man who dressed androgynously. He wasn't white, he wasn't macho, he wasn't rock, and they hated everything about him. Prince told a reporter, I'm sure wearing underwear and a trench coat didn't help matters, but if you throw trash at anybody, it's because you weren't trained right at home. He was incensed by the whole scene. There was this one dude, Prince told the LA Times, right in front, and you could see the hatred all over his face. The reason I left was because I didn't want to play anymore. I just wanted to fight. I was really angry. Dr. Fink recalled, Prince said, this is absurd. Why should we put up with this? Brownmark said after they got chased off again. Mick Jagger came out because he was mad at the audience. 
He was kind of yelling at me. He was like, you know, that wasn't nice. These are my friends and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, boo, and just started throwing stuff to Mick Jagger. Morris Day said. Yeah, I think that pretty much ended the whole uh, dirty mind thing. You know, I, I think he realized he probably needs to put a little something extra on and just shift things around a little bit. Leroy Bennett. He kind of isolated himself so that really it was more about his team, his family, and, every, and not really exposing himself much anymore. And it also, that was when he started to change the way he dressed. That was kind of the end of the bikini briefs <laughs> and the leg warmers. What did it become after that? Oh, then he was wearing his very stylized pants with the, it became with the buttons down the sides and things like that. So, I mean, he wore more clothes. Prince was angry and hurt and rejected, but he soldiered through because he was determined to become a superstar. And he wasn't about to let a few hardcore Stones fans deter him. But also, throughout his young life, he'd been misunderstood and kicked and demeaned and abandoned. And so sadly, he knew how to fight through being mistreated because he was used to it. Prince had a really awful childhood really awful by any measure. That's Susan Rogers, Prince's engineer on Purple Rain and several subsequent albums. Alan Leeds said Prince, as a kid, decided to shape himself into a rock star as an escape from the world he was in. He saw becoming a rock star as a way of gaining acceptance and security. It was pretty apparent in talking with him a little bit, as well as people in Minneapolis who grew up with him, that this was something that he had had his sights on from, I suppose, junior high school, if not before. And his idea of celebrity was a way to kind of get back at his background, meaning that he was, he was a nerdy kind of kid, typically the kind of kid that would be bullied, although in his case, probably not because he could fight. He was very athletic, but uh, nonetheless, he was, he, was, uh, he was not a joiner. He was a loner, and he was short, and he was made fun of by kids that were tall, and, you know, the typical kind of stuff that happens to a nerdy kid who sits in a corner and plays a guitar while everybody else is out, you know, playing football or whatever. Prince was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota on June 7, 1958. His mother was Maddie Shaw, who was a twin. Her sister's name was Edna. They grew up in Louisiana and moved to Minneapolis in their teens. Maddie and her sister lived in the projects and were known for their prowess on the basketball court. She was black, which I mention only because some people have thought she wasn't because Prince tried to make us think she wasn't. He told a couple of very early interviewers that she was Italian and he was mixed, and he cast a white actress to play his mother in Purple Rain. Alan Leeds. Because of the movie Purple Rain, of course, and, and a couple of interviews he did very early on, one famously with our friend Nelson George, where he hinted at, if not came right out and stated that his mother was white. The fact is, Maddie Baker Nelson was very much a African-American woman, somewhat light-skinned for what that's worth, but there was no mistaking her race when you met her. Maddie was a jazz singer working in the clubs of Minneapolis, where she met John Nelson, a band leader who was two decades older than her, who led the Prince Rogers Trio. Nelson worked in the factory at Honeywell and played piano in nightclubs, which sometimes meant strip clubs. Both of them were Seventh-day Adventists, a strict faith that teaches followers the apocalypse is around the corner, so stay ready. One reason why Prince talked about the end of days in so many of his songs, from songs like 1999 to Let's Go Crazy to Sign of the Times to Seven, is because the notion that the apocalypse is coming soon is so prevalent in the Seventh-day Adventist teachings he was exposed to as a child. People in Minneapolis talk about seeing young Prince in SDA churches with his grandmother. Maddie and John married and had two children, Prince and Taika. But the marriage quickly grew troubled. Alan Leeds. It was pretty clear that his childhood wasn't something that was, um, you know, peaches and cream. From everything I've heard, there was drama in the house, meaning that the father and mother had issues, and eventually they separated. Back in 1981, Prince told a reporter at Newsday that his father, quote, felt hurt that he never got his break because of having the wife and kids and stuff. My mother knew that, and there were constant fights. In her memoir, Prince's first wife, Maite, says Prince told her about his battlefield childhood. 
She recalls him telling her about a time when he was seven years old and his mother came home from a shopping trip, and in her rush to get back home, she had to put her shirt on inside out. When she got home, Prince's father saw that and thought she'd been cheating on him and went ballistic. Maite wrote, As he was telling me about the violent scene that unfolded, I could see how deeply it still affected him. She says the movie Purple Rain is filled with allusions to his rough childhood, and in many ways it's about, quote, what it is for a child to witness the psychological warfare between his parents. In his brief memoir, The Beautiful Ones, Prince said, The sound of your parents fighting is chilling when you're a child. If it happens to become physical, it can be soul-crushing. One night I remember hearing them arguing, and it got physical. At some point, my mother crashed into my bedroom and grabbed me. She was crying, but managed to smile and said, Tell your father to be nice to me. Nelson moved out when Prince was nine, leaving behind a piano that Prince would spend hours and hours on. His musical interest had become clear at a young age. His mother said that when he was very young, if they went into a department store, Prince would often leave her side to go play on the keyboards. Friends say Prince loved his mother and learned some things about singing from her. Morris Day said, He always told me that he got singing from her. He said in the car together when he was a kid, she would sing, but she would never sing the um, lead note. She always sang harmony notes. And um, he said that he picked up harmonies from her singing, the, the, you know, the way she approached songs, doing her karaoke thing in the car. Jerome Benton from The Times said he knew Maddie. Very sweet lady, beautiful, light skin, you know, he liked yellow, yellow girls, no. <laughs> beautiful lady, um, very respectful, um, proud of her son. She didn't talk a whole lot, but she, she embraced us and was very endearing. But the relationship was always complicated. Susanna Melvoin, who was once engaged to Prince, said, He thought his mother was extraordinarily beautiful. Um, when he was growing up, he used to look up to her. He, he actually would say to me that when my mother was very, very young, she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. She had this specific hair and beautiful body, and she carried herself a specific way, and he was enamored with that. And he would talk about that. He would talk about how... I think it was his first role model of female beauty. And he took that with him forever, that vision of her, and even projected it a bit onto the women he ended up with. He wanted, I think he wanted it for himself. It goes back to embracing that female side of him. I think he was both. And he wanted to be that beautiful, beautiful woman and also that beautiful, beautiful man, he internalized his mother's beauty to become as beautiful as he was. And very early on, he looked up to her. When he grew up, he would put his makeup on to look like his mom. But another friend said Maddie was, quote, never a mama bear with him. This friend said, when I met her, you could tell right away that she was adoring him for who he became. You just know when it's not the real deal, and it's only because you've managed to come out of the mire of the life I actually offered you, and you've become something. Can you now get me out of the hell that I was in? Like, come and rescue me now. Although I treated you like shit. She wasn't a great caretaker. She was a party girl. Some people said Prince seemed to judge her harshly for sometimes getting drunk. Singer and girlfriend Jill Jones saw his bitterness about it. He would do impersonations, and he and he's done it a lot. Everybody who's gone out with him probably knows when he did the drinking with, and then holding a cigarette impersonation. And for him, it was just like the worst thing ever. Like she was cheap, and yet it was his mom. And it was kind of just bizarre. Anna Fantastic, one of Prince's girlfriends, also talked about him making fun of his mom for being a drinker. He hated alcohol and all of it because he said that's the image he has of his mom and he was grossed out by that. She too said Prince used to do an impression of her holding a cigarette while being drunk. Yeah, that's what he did, yeah. I feel like the reason he hated drinking was because his mom was quite a drinker and, uh, you know, he even did an impression of her, like, kind of, you know, putting his mom down. It was kind of, you know, degrading her a bit. It was obviously a bad childhood memory for him. Anna met Prince's mom, Maddie, a few times and saw the chilly mood between them. 
The mom I seen once, maybe twice, she came to the studio. Seemed a very cold relationship, like almost fake-ish. And, but still like he wanted to, it was like he was kind of glad to show her how successful he was or that's how it felt. Like, hmm, well, you know, look at me now kind of thing. She said Prince resented her in many ways. Prince said that she always asked for money. That was another thing. And he told me a story about when he went and had dinner with Michael Jackson. And he said the first thing Michael said when Prince walked in was, do your parents always ask you for money? And Prince was like, yes. (laughs) Prince told her stories that revealed his lasting bitterness about his childhood home. His dad had told him, like, all women are no good, and and his father knew that when he was at a gas station with Prince's mom, and his mom had on a polka dot dress, and she got out the car and was kind of just standing by the car when Prince's dad went in to pay for something, and this other real fancy car drove by, and apparently Miss Nelson looked, and she was flirting with the driver in the other car. In 1969, Maddie married a man named Howard Baker and became Maddie Baker. Prince did not get along with his new stepfather. In his memoir, Prince said, quote, The day my mother remarried was the day I decided I wanted to live with my real father, who loved the Bible and had a keen sense of morality and class, none of which my stepfather possessed. At 12 years of age, I left them to each other to go live with my father. It was the happiest day of my life. Friends say Maddie often went out and partied with her new husband, and young Prince found that very disturbing and incredibly off-putting. They say he started to despise his mother when she got involved with his stepfather, who Prince paid no attention to. He almost never spoke of him. He rarely spoke of his mother, but when he did mention her, he mentioned how disappointed he was in her. Everyone around him knew that his mother was a forbidden subject and one that was never to be brought up. His lifelong resentment of his mother was clear. Jill Jones said Prince seemed to cling to his resentment over the breakup of his parents, even as an adult. He just made it seem like she shouldn't have been with Mr. Baker. Obviously, she fell in love. He made it seem like she had a choice to stay with this other relationship that clearly didn't work. It just always seemed like he never got over his mom and dad's divorce. It was really clear to me, and I used to say it to him. Like, uh, everybody's parents divorce. Like, who, who hasn't gone through it? But it really seemed to affect him. If Maddie's relationship with young Prince was difficult, then her relationship with adult Prince was broken. After he became a star, he bought her a house in Minneapolis, but I'm told it took him years to make that decision because he didn't want to give her anything. Friends said he was like, here's your house, now stay away from me, I never want to hear from you again. But after that, he invited her to the premiere of Purple Rain and to his first wedding. But they never reconciled, their rupture was never healed, and he did not attend her funeral. But despite the troubled relationship with her firstborn, Maddie went on to have a third child, a boy named Omar, and became a loving presence in the lives of many young people. She got a master's degree in social work from the University of Minnesota and spent two decades as a social worker in the Minneapolis school system. And in her obituary, people spoke of how caring she was in her job. But young Prince could not handle living in her house, so he left to go stay with his father, John which did not work out at all. I don't think John was up to the task. Tour manager Alan Leeds. After all, he was playing nightclubs and strip joints for a living as well as working a day job, so I didn't have much time to learn how to be a full-time parent. He was very private. He approached music with a very unique personal style that was somewhere between Thelonious Monk and Sun Ra, from what I've heard. He apparently had no interest in commercial music, so as a result, he didn't make a lot of money with music. And I think he was basically a frustrated jazz man, jazz man at heart, who just never was part of the real jazz scene. And, you know, whether or not he could have could have competed successfully in New York in those days when all the great jazz giants were playing in the city all the time, you know, who knows? You know, suffice it to say, John was a weird guy. He was he was a different kind of guy. Now, we knew him as the father of a rock star who was, you know, happy to enjoy the perks that came with that. And he was uh, very, very pleasant to be around, in my experience. 
looking between his eyes, you could kind of get a sense that his life had had a lot of drama. John Nelson was cold. Guitarist Wendy Melvoin. He seemed detached, didn't talk much. You could tell Prince was intimidated by him. Wendy's twin sister Susanna said John Nelson was a really strange guy. Some speculated that he may have had a personality disorder. They said he didn't know how to have a conversation. He was uncomfortable in his own space. He was a bizarre cat. And John's uniqueness was clear in the way he played. Susanna Melvoin. I only know what he was like when he would play piano at the house. And he'd sit. <laughs> he could still giggle at it. Prince and I would look at each other. or <laughs> Lisa and Prince and I would look at each other and our eyes would get really big like, check this out. He was experimental and it was almost like it was written in his mind. Sometimes you had no idea what he was actually playing. He'd sit on the piano and he would just, what on earth is he playing? And then he'd get up and then sit back down on the piano and play it again. And none of it made any sense to your mind. It was so avant-garde and so weirdly atonal and strange. And then, then, then he'd have some sort of melodic run with his right hand and then he'd play another chord and then it would go into so this nonsensical crazy weird thing and you'd think to yourself has he gone mad and then he could play it again he'd remember it prince would howl with laughter and he would say i told you i told you when you listen to him and he was like right right it's crazy right he can do that incredible i think that there was a mad genius in there but you had to really <laughs> you had to really take your take a moment and listen because you didn't know what you were listening to. Do you hear ways in which Prince's music was influenced by John's? Yeah. Yeah. I think that Prince loved that the experimental side of his father and the atonal qualities. Almost it's not John Cage. I mean it was certainly experimental jazz kind of stuff, but not necessarily recognizable. I think that Prince loved the unpredictability of it, and he took that into his own music. And he loved his father for that. He loved that his father was unpredictable and odd and committed, totally committed. And I think that that was definitely something Prince took. He learned that, you know, commit to the whatever it is, Big, a, a hard commitment. Don't back out of even the mistake. Make the mistake the, the beauty in it. And Prince did take a lot of that. And I do believe that that's very true. I think you'd probably hear it in plenty of things he's done. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff in the vault and, and even him at the piano. I'm sure there's plenty of it. I mean, we sometimes you'd hear, you know, Prince would come up with something and he'd write something and then he'd come in and say, you want to come listen to this new track or he played in the car and you'd be like, wow, hmm, you got a lot of your dad in that. But it, it would inevitably make a, a, a lot more sense musically. I do think that he took a lot of what his father had and happily so. He, uh, you know, he looked up to his dad musically big time. Alan Leeds. I had the opportunity to hear John playing on countless occasions, either visiting his house or he was at Prince's house or horsing around in the studio and so on. And he had a very eclectic style. John's music, I get the impression that when he was younger on the scene locally that he probably wasn't taken too seriously. He was a good musician. He was respected as a musician. But when it came to his own material, he was, he was out there. But I think some of the people in Prince's band heard his stuff and were just like, holy. Moly, this is really, really out to lunch. Um, so, you know, every, everything's relative. Depends on the context uh, as, as to just how crazy it was. Um, you know, people said some of Prince's music was crazy, too. And then he got paid, and all of a sudden it wasn't crazy. So maybe if John had been successful or had a couple albums on Blue Note, uh, it wouldn't have been so crazy. Jill Jones said Prince adored his dad and doted on him, and they hung like brothers. And he loved making music with his dad, but Prince knew how to cut out the abstract and make it popular. It was very abstract, but why they worked together is that Prince knew what pieces to extract and to evolve on them. And he had to handle it in a way that it wasn't offensive to his dad's ego, maybe. And I'm just saying that from looking because it was delicate, because I think his dad was so abstract and Prince was very a lot more humble around his father. 
or he appeared to be. There was this really little bit of wonderment when he would look at him. And he enjoyed his time with his father. They played pool, all sorts of things. Friends say Prince as a musician was very much like John. When Prince became an adult, he and John restarted their relationship and spent several years partying like close friends. John Nelson was, to my experience, was a sweet guy. Now, I've heard other things, that he was difficult, he was moody. But by the time I knew him, his son was a rich celebrity, and he was uh, enjoying some of the spoils of that because he and Prince had, had patched things up and were spending more time together and even working on some musical projects together. In the liner notes of Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, and Parade, you'll see John L. Nelson listed as a co-songwriter. There was a relationship that hadn't been there when Prince was a kid, and um, I think it was probably John's happiest years because, uh, you know, for the first time in his life, he wasn't stressed over money. John was just happy and, and, you know, excited at the people he was able to meet through his son's celebrity. I mean, when Miles Davis came to Minneapolis and had dinner at Prince's house and Prince made sure his dad was there and the idea that, that his dad could go to his son's house and have dinner sitting across the table from Miles Davis, I mean, you know, who's mad at that? Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. When Prince was an adult hanging with his dad as he toured the world, they were both really happy to share those moments together. Jerome from the time was there to see Prince and his father enjoying each other's presence. I was able to sit back and watch Prince just enjoy his dad play that stuff. And he, his dad would walk out and Prince would just be like, oh, that motherfucker's so bad. <laughs> yeah. He dressed like Prince. Prince got him suits made, and he's walking around in his little purple flu flu. <laughs> you know, he even had some of the same poses and stuff. Maybe, maybe Prince took some of that stuff and added it to his repertoire, but it worked. And, and this man, I seen this man knowing their relationship hadn't been the most soundest. I seen this man enjoying his son and the pride he had in his success. Man, what an amazing thing to see. That's a whole different story. We're, we're sitting in, in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, Ipanema, at the Caesars Park Hotel, and we're just standing on the balcony, just looking out, and he's schooling me. Look at all that. Look at all that. You know how lucky you are? Yes, Mr. Nelson, I know how lucky you are. I said, you know how lucky you are? <laughs> and he would just laugh. But back when Prince was a 12-year-old kid living at John's house, as he was working at Honeywell during the day and playing clubs at night, things were really hard between them. It seemed like John wasn't really ready to be a dad. Prince lasted about six months at his house. Morris Day, who grew up near Prince, was there the night Prince got thrown out of his father's house for good. Prince got kicked out because he and I had these uh, girlfriends who were close friends. And so we would hang out with them. And it got to the point where, you know, they, you know how you, uh, you know, back in the day, you, you kind of say you're sleeping over somebody's house, but you, um, so one day he sneaks the girl and he'd already been threatened about bringing uh, girls up in his dad's house. So one day he sneaks this girl up to his room and, you know, pulls the mattress off the bed and throws it on the floor. So, you know, you ain't no noise and squeaking going on. And, uh, John found out about it, and uh, he just told him, he's like, uh, put your key on the table. I was there with him when it happened. We came in, said hello to John and everything, and he didn't say nothing. He just looked at Prince and said, put your key on the table, <laughs> and that was it. Prince didn't say anything. He meant it. There was no questioning it, and uh, that was it, man. <laughs> yeah, he knew that that meant he was out. He was 12 or 13 years old with no real home. 
For a few months, he was couch surfing and semi-homeless. Susanna said, He just didn't have a place to be, and he found himself living all over town and just living all over the place. Prince once told a reporter, I was constantly running from family to family. It was nice on one hand because I always had a new family, but I didn't like being shuffled around. I was bitter for a while, but I adjusted. He ended up in the home of his friend Andre Anderson, who would later become known as Andre Simone. Prince asked if he could stay with the Andersons. Bernadette Anderson called Maddie and they talked about it. They already knew each other and it was okayed. It wasn't originally supposed to be forever, but a week became a month and he ended up staying for about five years throughout most of his teens, staying there until he had a record deal and enough money to live on his own. Bernadette became like a surrogate mother for him, became the mother he didn't have. Prince spent his teenage years living in Bernadette Anderson's basement alongside Andre. There was a partition dividing the room in half, and their beds were pushed up against the walls, and there was space in the middle where they could rehearse. Morris Day said, if you want a mental image of that basement, just picture the basement in Purple Rain. Bernadette's house almost mirrored what he put together for Purple Rain. The basement looked just like the basement in the movie. Um, It was a little dark, dusty basement, you know, with the bed and the posters and all of that. And 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 if you you want to know, just go look at Purple Rain. That's exactly what Bernadette's basement looked like. Except that Prince lived there with Bernadette's youngest son, his best friend, Andre. The Anderson home had a huge impact on Prince. Andre was the youngest of six, and his mom, Bernadette Anderson, became a second mom to Prince, one he loved and felt supported by. He mentions her in his songs a few times as if she's a saint or an angel. Jill Jones met Bernadette a few times and said she was amazing, lovely, loving, warm, nurturing. I can't say enough. And pretty remarkable, solid, probably very different type of mother than what he was used to. But Bernadette got things, you know, done. I mean, she was an independent woman who had to get out and work and and do things and created these strong personas and characters of making things happen. Jerome said Bernadette was a maternal figure for a lot of people, including him. Um, Amazing. Amazing. I'd never seen her mad. Always ready to nurture. And that's what she did. She nurtured young men and women of the North Side. For me, yeah, she, she was a presence. She was a presence. Because she, she was just a nicer version of my mom. <laughs> Bernadette was Prince's first big fan. He'd write songs and play them for her in the kitchen, and she'd encourage him. The Anderson home was a place where Prince could think and talk about music and practice all the time. Andre was also a budding, talented musician, which is why Prince was friends with him, and he was able to be the perfect friend to help push Prince a little further. Bernadette talked about waking up in the middle of the night and hearing him strumming his guitar. Prince was as obsessed as they come, and as a teenager, he taught himself how to play 14 different instruments, and he could play pretty much anything besides a horn. Prince was a kid who was waiting outside the music room when they unlocked the door, and he was a kid they had to kick out at the end of the day so they could lock up. Then he went home and practiced more for hours, playing until his fingers bled. Morris Day said Prince was the most devoted musician he ever met. I thought I was a serious-minded musician until I met Prince. In one of my favorite bits from Morris's great 2019 memoir of growing up with Prince called On Time, Morris says he, Morris, had a four-track recorder in his house, and there was no telling when Prince would come by demanding to use it. Morris wrote, quote, He'd show up at all hours, banging on the door, saying he had to get in to record a song that had just flown into his head. Sometimes we let him, and sometimes, like the night he wanted to barge in at 3 a.m., we'd try to ignore him. But damn if he wouldn't stop banging. Rather than let him bust down the door, I'd get out of bed, let the brother in, and help him lay down the track. He would stop by my house, and there would be times I'd even try and duck. It was a little house, and act like I wasn't home. And he'd go from one, from the front door, 
to the window, banging on the window, to the back door, banging on the back door. You think I stole something from him? Something he just wanted to come. He just wanted to come in and record, man. And that went on all the time. It's amazing being around the cat because he already had one of those Mead type notebooks. Um, he said he had over a hundred songs in the book at 15. You know, I had just never been around anybody like that, and um, it just it just kept escalating. By age 15, Prince and Andre and Morris were in a band called Grand Central that played around Minneapolis. They played at clubs that Prince was too young to get into as a patron. The band was Grand Central that we were in together. It was cool. We just always grooved. You know, if we weren't playing something structured or putting a set list together to do a show, uh, then we were jamming. It was deep, man. We would cover stuff anywhere from pop music to uh, we would do fusion uh, jazz, um, just all over the place, but just uh, went through some serious grooves and spent a lot of time doing it. Interestingly, while Prince was in the music room at school and in Andre's basement and on stage at clubs around town, constantly playing music, breathing it all in, learning all these instruments, writing all the time, learning everything he could about creating music, he never bothered to learn how to read or write music. That's right, one of the greatest musicians of the century, one of the greatest songwriters of the century, could not read or write sheet music. Morris Day said, I can understand why he didn't really want to read. I'm, I'm sure he could have learned that if he wanted, but I just think he had so much music in his head and he picked up these instruments so easily that I think it probably would have hurt him creatively to try to, to be a, a, a formally trained musician. I guess it makes sense for an autodidact who was focused on creating his own music to not learn how to read and write. Paul McCartney says neither he nor John Lennon could read or write. But okay, when Prince was in a band, how did he communicate a new song to the rest of the group? Oh, that was easy. I mean, he he played everything. Trombonist Greg Boyer said he was singing like, okay, Greg, right here, I want this thing. And I used to laugh because... It was very brittle sounding, and <laughs> he didn't sound like a horn at all. As a matter of fact, he sounded a lot like the Little Sweets Dr. Pepper commercials <laughs> when he was singing the horn lines. And I'm sitting there myself, I don't want to laugh because I have to get this line down. But it sounded funny to me. Sometimes Greg or another musician would translate Prince's singing for the rest of the band. I would write out what he sang give it to everybody in the horn section, and then we'd play it. And he's like, yep, that's it. I, I made a career that was taking his ideas and putting them down on paper and just handing it out to the rest of the section. Once, when Prince was a superstar, he was in the studio with a few musicians and he said, I'm going to write the parts for this part here. Greg Boyer was there. He comes over to me with a legal pad. It says, uh, I'm going to write something. You know, idea I have for the next song. This left Greg a little perplexed. And I'm thinking, now wait a minute. I don't know this guy to be a sheet music guy. So I'm just sitting there waiting. He takes a legal pad, scribbles a few things, and he walks away. And I pick it up and look at it. In bright green highlighter, he has written the word help. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's almost at the door when I read this, and I turned around and looked at him, and he just looked over his shoulder, smirked, and he walked out of the room. And that was my first glimpse into his sense of humor. Okay, back to Prince as a teenager. People said music was all Prince ever did. He never had a job. Someone said he might have worked once at a local record shop for a brief period of time, but no one could recall him ever working outside of music. That said, even as he grew into a musical monster, people say he remained kind of corny. Pepe Willie was a friend of Prince's in those teenage years. He was much older and something of a mentor. He said in those days, Prince was very quiet and a total square. That's the word he used, square. Willie said Prince would just do square things, like they'd be rehearsing and Willie and the rest of them would go take a break, go outside and smoke a joint. And when they went back in, Prince would be like, ooh, ooh, look at you, your eyes are red. 
Willie said he was not hip at all. He didn't do drugs. He didn't drink. He didn't even take breaks when we were practicing. He never took a break. When we came back in, he still got his guitar on and he's playing stuff. He was just a worker all the time. So nobody really wanted to hang out with him because he wasn't like cool. In his memoir, Morris says Prince never did drugs, not even as a teenager. He writes, quote, he didn't need that extra creative boost. He could get to that higher plateau without stimulants. I also think Prince feared drugs. Prince needed control at all times. He didn't want his vision clouded or his mind altered. It makes sense that Prince's need to be in control would keep him from doing drugs. But he also didn't want people doing drugs around him. Or We always hang out, you know, so... Uh, like I said, if I felt like I needed to get high, that's I'd split and go do my thing because, uh, you know, uh, he just he just wasn't the person to do that around. But Morris did tell me that there was at least one time that he saw Prince do something. Oh, yeah. I was the get high guy. And and, um, and he was, you know, all about clean living, you know. So that was the difference, a big difference. Uh, and every now and then he would want to get high. So he'd say, hey, you know, uh, let's let's. He, he kept wanting to do mushrooms. Huh? You know, I didn't really, I wasn't into mushrooms, but I said, okay, I'll get some mushrooms, man. <laughs> One night, yeah, we do these mushrooms, and then, you know, we go to the club, and uh, he started acting kind of weird, you know. I mean, next thing I know, the dude's sitting down on the floor and stuff, and I, I was sitting next to him. I was like, uh, you think we should probably get up out of here, man? He's <laughs> sitting there, and uh, we talked a little bit and finally get back up, and guess what? Back to the studio to cut some music. At school, they say Prince was a loner and an introvert. He opted to have his picture omitted from his school yearbook in both his junior and senior year. Some said he was a D student. Susan Rogers once saw one of his report cards from school. It was in a box of stuff that his mother had just dropped off. And it said, he's quiet, he's respectful, he's polite, he's obviously very bright, but he keeps himself apart from the other kids for the most part. Some said he was teased a lot in school, even bullied. He was the shortest guy on the basketball team by far, and everyone knew his dad had thrown him out. That was a big source of shame. Years later, when people who had gone to high school with him saw that he had become a star, they were shocked. One said, when did he get that personality implant? But if they had known him, they would have known that becoming a star was all he thought about. For Prince back then, it wasn't if I become a star. Prince talked about when we make it, not if we make it. Morris Day heard it all the time. It's like, when we make it, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Andre told me a story. That's Jill Jones. Where they were in the supermarket or at a 7-Eleven or something, and they were coming out, and that was when Prince said, don't get used to this because there will be a time when we won't be able to do this. Prince's manager, Alan Leeds. A lot of young people want to be singers and musicians, but I think if you'd have asked him and he was honest with his answer, what your goal is, for him it would have been to be a star, as opposed to just saying singer-musician. Almost as if the singer-musician was secondary and just served the goal of being becoming a celebrity. As a young teenager, he was thinking about becoming a star as a way of fixing his life. In addition to his being a small kind of nerdy kid, you also had a situation where his mother had left him with his dad early on in his childhood. And when you get that kind of that kind of situation, it only reads as rejection to a youngster. And um, I think he was looking for acceptance. And maybe his seek of celebrity was replacing his mother. The idea of celebrity was his way of kind of looking at society and finding his place, that it was never going to be a joiner, he was never going to be one of the gang, that he was going to have to make his own rules and create his own place in this atmosphere out here called the music business and do it in such a way that he would get the kind of attention and respect that he was craving for. But to people who didn't really know him back then... It was hard to see that he was on his way to becoming a star. One old friend described him as a... A little yellow Negro with a pretty afro. Not much to say. That's Jerome Benton from the time, the one who held the full-length mirror that Morris Day would look at in the middle of a performance. Jerome grew up in Minneapolis and knew Prince from his high school days. They went to different high schools. But Prince would come to our music room and play. He said Prince was a quiet guy who conserved his words. But if you knew him, 
you knew he was deep. If he did speak, it, it was always something sound and he had a purpose. He was driven. After I eased into my mature a state of mind and, and being with him, I, I understood what his drive was. And it was to make everything right. You know, putting pieces in place. Amazing, amazing, amazing man. In the Minneapolis music scene, Prince was getting that respect. By his late teens, his reputation preceded him. Des Dickerson told me that before he auditioned to be in Prince's band, he had heard about Prince. In local musician circles, he had stepped into urban legend status. People were like, have you heard about this kid who can play all the instruments? The new Stevie Wonder? People who were into music could see that he was brilliant. Des Dickerson said at his audition, he thought Prince was mature beyond his years. Des said Prince didn't say much, but when he spoke, there was a depth to his words that you didn't see from people his age. He could see in Prince's eyes that he was deep. And yet, he was humble enough to be constantly learning. Every engineer he worked with said he was observing and assimilating recording techniques. People say he was imminently teachable and able to absorb and assimilate new information rapidly and was honest with himself about his musical shortcomings back when he had some. Des said one of Prince's greatest strengths was his ability to recognize what he couldn't do and work harder than anybody else to change that. Prince was transforming into a supernova. His talent was blossoming, his reputation was growing, and shortly after graduating from high school in 1976, he got a studio owner, Chris Moon, to give him a set of keys to the studio, which meant he was there so much he taught himself everything about studio technology. The studio owner told the local manager Prince was a Stevie Wonder-level talent. The manager signed him and financed Prince's demo tape, on which Prince wrote and played every note of some very lewd funk. And Prince soon had a record deal with Warner Brothers, a deal that gave him creative control. He bought a Nissan Datsun and began making and releasing his first albums, which did not make much of a splash. He knew he needed to do something extra to get attention. He wanted to be hypersexual titillating, a flouter of taboos. He knew he had to court controversy as a marketing strategy. He started going on stage in heels and stockings and trench coats, making people wonder, who is he and what is he? That was exactly what Prince wanted. Until that confusion meant Prince was on stage in L.A., dodging bottles of Jack Daniels and day-old chicken being hurled at him by fans who had no idea what to make of the short little funky guy wearing women's clothing. They tried to silence him, but they merely chased him away. But of course he came back. You couldn't silence Prince any more than you could silence sound itself. You couldn't stop Prince because music was the language he spoke and felt and how he processed the world. So he had to make it. He had to make it constantly. But what were the sounds and the influences that were poured into him to make him who he was? The sounds that made Prince, Prince, in the next chapter of Who Was Prince. Thanks for listening to Who Was Prince. Please share with your friends if you like the show. Our executive producers were me, Torre, Chris Colbert, Adele Coleman, and Ryan Woodhall. Our technical producer, Byron Hunt. And our distribution was by DCP Entertainment.